The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. This morning we will look at verses 17 through 21. Luke writes, and these are the words of Jesus that he's recording. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We've spent the last two weeks working through the first part of chapter 8 of Luke's gospel, in particular looking at the parable of the soils, this lengthy parable that Jesus uh, delivered and then explained to his disciples off on the side. And we have sort of worked our way through that, wrestling through the reality that that, that Jesus describes in that parable the way people respond to the good news, to the gospel, to the truth that he comes to deliver. And it has to do with the condition of their hearts. And, And there are a lot of people who hear what God has to say, but it never actually takes root in their life and shows up in any way, any practical way in the way that they live. And he tells that parable to make clear to us and to any who were to read it or to hear it that not everybody who claims to believe the truth actually does believe the truth. And not everyone who claims to know Jesus actually knows Jesus. But we saw in that that the reality is those who know Christ, those who belong to him, those whose hearts are the good soil are people who, who hear the truth and the truth takes root in their life And it grows up and it bears fruit that's visible in the way that they live. And it endures throughout their life. And we've wrestled with sort of the reality of that. There's this idea that that fruit or good behavior or righteous works that, that flow out of our life really are a reflection of the reality or the lack of reality of saving faith. And we started thinking really last week theologically through how do good works interact with justification and how do our good works interact with sanctification, our different aspects of of our salvation. And we came to the conclusion last week very clearly that the Bible teaches that justification 
simply is God's declaration that we are no longer guilty of our sin because our sin has been nailed to the cross. Christ has paid for it, and by placing our faith and trust in him, his payment for our debt has settled our debt, and we are no longer guilty before God for our sin. It's a one-time event that takes place, and our, our works, our righteous behavior, play no part in that justification. It is solely a sovereign act of God that he does on our behalf. At the moment we believe, at the moment we receive Christ and trust our lives to him. But we saw that at that moment, a process that's a part of our salvation begins to, to start out to take place, this process of sanctification. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, who then begins to progressively transform us from the inside out into the image of Jesus. And that shows up in the way that we live. That shows up in the way that we behave and in the way that we think and in the way that we act. And our works are, are a part of that, our righteous behavior, the good things that we do are a reflection of that sanctification that takes place inside of us. As we begin to live lives that reflect the character of Christ, as we begin to be changed into his image more and more over time, that, that change and that visible change in our life that, that becomes evident to us and those who are watching us, it validates our claim to saving faith. It shows that what we claim to have happened really has indeed happened. And it's continuing to take place in us and through us. But there is a third aspect of salvation that's addressed in this chapter, particularly as it relates to our righteous behavior and our good works. It's one of the least, I think, discussed aspects of salvation, and yet one of the most wonderful aspects of salvation, the idea of adoption. We'll see it here toward the end of our text, but just sort of to, to give you a, a sequential look at how salvation sort of plays out. Maybe you've heard of the order salutis, the, the, the order of salvation. I'll show you a slide. When, when you and I come to Christ and, and, and think, well, let's say it different. When we think in terms of our salvation, there, this is a process that's been playing out from eternity past really into the future of eternity. Uh, our salvation, in some sense, we won't spend time on it this morning, was declared by sovereign God in eternity past when he chose us in him. We were chosen in Christ to be redeemed. But that, re that election becomes a reality in our lives. It becomes an experiential thing in our lives when we hear the good news of the gospel. Somebody, a preacher, uh, a friend, a neighbor, somebody shares the gospel with us and they tell us what it means to know Jesus Christ, to repent of our sin and to trust in him. They tell us that message of the gospel, and as we hear that, the Spirit of God calls us to Christ through the gospel message. And as he calls us, he regenerates us. What that means is he, he takes away our cold, dark, stony heart, to use Old Testament language, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh, a heart that's alive to Christ, a heart that is receptive to the gospel. And we hear the truth, and we believe it, and we repent of our sin, we turn from a lifestyle of selfish behavior, and we turn toward a life lived for Christ and his glory. That's conversion. In that moment, we are born again, Jesus says. In that very moment, we are justified. God declares us 
legally not guilty, our sin nailed to the cross of Christ, the penalty paid, we are no longer before God guilty sinners, but our sins have been paid for. And he looks upon us as he looks upon his son in perfect righteousness. Regeneration, conversion, justification, we have them in an order here, but experientially these things are simultaneous, really. But there's something else that happens in that moment. Adoption. Adoption. If you want a theological definition for that, here's one for you. Adoption is simply the gracious act of God whereby he makes justified sinners members of his family with all the rights and responsibilities that go with that status. At the moment that we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, God doesn't just justify us and declare uh, us, us no longer guilty. He doesn't just forgive our sins and wipe the slate clean. He, he takes that a step further and he adopts us into his family. There's a relational aspect of this. We go from being outsiders to being insiders. Westminster Confession, our Presbyterian friends, look to this quite often, says this, to be adopted is to receive God's name and to have access to God's throne, his pity, his protection, his provision, his discipline, and his promise to never abandon us. To put it really simply, when we think of adoption, what we're talking about is God's admission of a believer into his family. That's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing to think about when you consider how people like you and me come into this world. The Bible says that you and I come into this world not as friends of God. We don't come into this world good people. In fact, the Bible declares that we are born into sin and that our condition before coming to Christ is not friends or family, but we're in fact his enemies. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 Paul writes to the believers at Rome, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God by the death of his son, much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. He says to the Roman believers, you know what we were? You know what we were before Christ redeemed us? We were, we were God's enemies. We weren't his friends. We weren't a part of his family. We were his enemies. Similarly, he says to the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2, verse 12 and following this, he says this, remember that you were at that time, he's talking about prior to coming to Christ, you were separated from Christ. Listen to how he describes their position prior to coming to Christ. They were separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. What an awful position you and I were in before we came to the Lord Jesus. That's a pretty awful description. We were separated from Christ. We were living in the world with absolutely no hope. We, had, we were without God. We were far off from him. I mean, you couldn't get a worse description, right? than to be alienated from God, to be his enemies who are far away from him, who have no hope, and who are absolutely without God. That's how you and I come into the world. That's how the Romans 
came into the world. That's how the church at Ephesus, the believers there, came into the world. We came into the world sinners, and our sin separated us from God and positioned us in relation to him as rebellious enemies who were destined for eternal judgment. In Ephesians chapter 2, earlier in the chapter, we were described as before Christ, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. However, when you and I repent of our sins and we entrust our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and we trust him alone to save us, several things happen immediately. We're justified, declared legally not guilty. Our sins are forgiven and wiped away. And at that moment, we are moved positionally from being God's enemies to being his family. From being far from God to being very near to God from being God's enemies to being God's children children of God what a remarkable thing to be called a child of God if you're a parent is there anybody closer in relation to you than your children right you can't get much closer relationally than a child of a father or a mother the Bible says when you and I come to Christ, we become God's children. People who were far off are now his kids. People who were his enemies are now part of his family. In John chapter 1, verse 11 and following, John writes this, He came to his own, speaking of Christ, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John is saying, Jesus the Messiah, he came. He came to his own people, Israel. But Israel rejected him. They chose not to receive him. But to everybody who does receive him, to everybody who does believe upon him, he gives them the right to become children of God. They become his kids. 1 John 3, 1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, Paul writes, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The glorious promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that people like us who are vile sinners who've rebelled in all sorts of ways against God who come into this world as his enemies can become his children through faith in the Lord Jesus. We're adopted into his family. He doesn't just forgive us and then keep us at a safe distance. He adopts us. He makes us sons and daughters of the king. Instead of cowering before him as our judge, we look to him like a dad, like a loving father. It makes all the difference in the world. J.I. Packer writes this 
in his book, Knowing God. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. For father is the Christian name for God. So, to be a Christian is to be a child of God, an adopted member of his family, joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, in light of that, there are really two questions that we need to ask and answer. One, how do we know if we've been adopted into his family? And two, what does all that have to do with soils and a lamp? See, that's what you were thinking, right? If it wasn't what you were thinking, it should be what you're thinking. And the answer we find at the very end of the chapter or of our passage in verse 21. But Jesus answered them and he said, my mother and my brothers, that is those who are my family, are those who hear the word of God and do it. How do you tell if you're adopted into the family of God or you're unadopted? The adopted don't just hear the word of God, they hear the word of God and then they do it. This is the entire theme, really, of this whole first section of chapter 8. It's the very same theme that he, that he was leading us to in the parable of the soil. Remember in verse 15, as for the good soil, those are those who, these are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. How do you know who are the people with the good soil? They bear fruit and they show signs of obedience. Their life breaks forth in evidence and their behavior and their attitudes and their actions and their speech that they know Christ. Obedience becomes the fruit of their life. Well, what does a lamp have to do with that? Look at verse 16 and 17. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, and puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, that may seem like a really strange follow-up to the parable of the soils because I found myself, as I was initially reading through this, asking the question, well, what does that have to do with the soils? And what does that have to do with Jesus' mother and brothers who come right after this? Why has Luke arranged these events this way? They did not happen chronologically this way, so why has Luke arranged them this way? There has to be some connection between the three things. First, what is a lamp that we're talking about? You see a picture on your screen. It's not a candle. It would have been an oil lamp that looks something like that. A little jar of some sort or a container that has oil and some sort of a wick that sticks up out of it that could be lit. And, and you would use it to sort of light up a, a room. What does that have to do? And what's the picture that Jesus is painting for us here? Well, the illustration or the image that he presents here is really an absurd illustration. It's an absurd picture. It's sort of a, an exaggerated picture that, that, that anybody would hear would say, well, nobody would ever do that. The whole point of a lamp and lighting it is to what? Well, it's to light up a room, right? There's no other reason to light a lamp than to light up a room. It would be an, an, a complete fool, an idiot, who would light a lamp and then hide it under a bed or put something over the top of it so that it couldn't be seen, right? Who would do that? Nobody in their right mind would do something like that. Nobody would light a lamp just to hide it. 
No, what do you do with a lamp? You, you light it and you put it up on a stand so it can light up the room and be visible and do what it was designed to do. In Matthew's retelling of this account, he says this as a follow-up. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So he helps us here. He shows us that the shining of the light is good works, righteous works, obedient works. That's what we're talking about. And again, good works don't earn our salvation, but good works then become the result of our salvation. Good works are the light that shines forth from the transformed heart. Just like good fruit is the fruit that is born out of the good soil, uh, the good, good works are the light that shines out of the heart that's been lit on fire by the gospel of Christ. And the purpose of the good works is not to earn our salvation. The purpose of the good works is so that other people might see the good works and glorify God in them. Just as when you walk into a dark room and you flip the light switch and the lights come on, you thank the good Lord that you can now see. When the light of Christ indwells us, it shines through us. And it shines out so other people can see it. And it shows up in good works. That's the light he's talking about here. Righteous behavior, obedience to Christ. And those things are not things that earn us any standing before God, but they are a living, invisible testimony to the world of the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has the power to take sinners and transform them into saints. And when people see that light shining out of your life, they should look at you and say, Praise God that he's able to take an idiot like that and make him into something that's worthwhile, right? That's what I think. They see me. That guy wasn't much. But look at what Christ has done with him. Glory to God. Just like the good seed planted in the good soil always produces good visible fruit, a good lamp lit up by a good flame will always shine forth visible light. So the both analogies are essentially the same. And they're both analogies that, that speak to us about saving faith and how it, how it plays out in the life of the believer. When our hearts are transformed by the saving power of Christ, our lives produce visible evidence of that transformation. And the corollary to that is those who the life that claims to be transformed by the power of Christ but shows no visible evidence of that reality and their behavior. That person's a fraud, a fake, not the real thing. Jesus uses light as a way of describing himself in relation to the world. And he uses this illustration often, particularly in the Gospel of John. If you were to go to John 9, verse 5, you would see this. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And you flipped a few pages to John 12, verse 46, he says this. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain where? In the darkness. I've come into the world as a light so the people who believe in me, once they believe in me, they don't, they don't 
walk in the darkness anymore. They have the light. In John 8, verse 12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in what? In darkness. Why? Because they'll have the light of life. Those who believe in me, I illuminate their life and that light shines forth in their behavior and it's no longer behavior that's reflective of the deeds of darkness. The behavior is reflective of being indwelled by the light of Christ. When people trust him, when they receive him as Savior and Lord, his light shines through them and they become little lights that shine his truth and his righteousness for the world to see and to glorify God in relation to Someone who claims to have the light of life and walks in darkness consistently is a fake. That's the point of the absurd illustration. The person who claims to walk in the light, to have the light of Christ in their heart, but it doesn't show up anywhere in their behavior, there's no light shining forth from their life, is a walking contradiction. It's as absurd as somebody who lights a lamp and hides it under a bucket. I'll occasionally come across folks in my, sort of my experience who would begin to talk about faith. They'll say something to me along the lines of this. They'll say something like, I'm a Christian, but, 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 but my faith is a private matter. It's between me and God. Have you had that kind of conversation with folks before? I don't really like to talk about it. I'm a Christian. I, I believe in God, and, but that's just a private part of my life. I don't, I don't, really, I don't really want to talk about it. And when they say that, they're, they're, well, the indication is that there's different parts of life. There's a, a public part of life that people see, and there's a private part of life that nobody sees. And, and they're claiming that, that the reality is that, that they believe in God and they have a relationship with God privately, but publicly that never shows up. The Bible, front to back, declares that true saving faith will never simply be a private matter. It will always be a public matter. It will inevitably be a public matter because the heart that is changed by Christ is transformed. And that transformation shows up in visible public sorts of ways. And if it doesn't show up in visible public sorts of ways, then there's reason to look back and question whether the transformation, in fact, has taken place. A transformed heart that doesn't show up in a transformed life is a fraud. And that's the message that Jesus is delivering here. And he goes on to give a warning. He says in verse 17, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. It's a stern warning. It's a stern warning. And the summary of it is this. He's simply saying the truth eventually comes out. You can believe whatever you want about yourself. You can, you can convince yourself that your faith is real, but it's only a public, I mean, only a private matter. You can convince yourself that that's real and that's true saving faith, but eventually the truth comes out. And all you're doing is setting yourself up for a shock one day when the truth is revealed. We can lie to other people about the status of our faith. We can even lie to ourselves about the status of our faith. But eventually, the truth is revealed. If not in this life, it will be at the final judgment. 
So this thing about lamps and this thing about the soils, it's the same thing. It's the same message. The good soil is the person who hears the gospel. It takes root in their life and it shows up in good fruit. The person who has a, a true lamp that's been lit by, by Christ, the, Christ, the light of Christ is truly indwelling them. It shines forth into light into their life. It shows up in visible ways that are evident. And then he says this, as another warning, take care how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And for the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. It's a really strict and stern warning for people like you and me, for people who go to church, for people who make it a habit of hearing the word of God. Take care how you hear. Take care how you listen. We won't spend the time this morning to do it, but you could track this, this theme of, of hearing and listening all through the Old and the New Testament. And we've seen it all throughout Luke chapter 8 from the very beginning. We remember early on, he says, he who has ears, what? Let him hear. When he was asked about, why, does he, why are you teaching in parables? What does he say? He says, I'm doing that in order to, to, in some ways, reveal the gospel, but in other ways to conceal it. But he says, quoting Isaiah, Isaiah's prophecy, I, I'm doing this so that people, while hearing, won't be able to hear. And here he says, take care how you hear. All throughout the parable of the soils, the soil, this soil was someone who hears the gospel and does this. Someone who hears the good news and does this. And all the way down to verse 21, he's still talking about hearing. Hearing is the theme that ties all these pieces together. And he says, you better take care how you hear. Throughout the Bible, God has been very concerned about his people's hearing. If you were to go back to Psalm 81, verse 11 and following, listen to what God says. He says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. Oh, that my people would listen to me and that Israel would walk in my ways. You hear God looking at his people who are, are hearing with their ears, but they're not listening. Isaiah 46, verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. Listen to me. Why are you not listening to me? Jeremiah 22, 21. This is just a sampling of the Old Testament. I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. I don't know if you caught it, but in Psalm 81, Isaiah 46, and Jeremiah 22, there's a close connection between two things, hearing and obeying. Hearing and obeying. And the clear message of all of those messages that God was delivering to his people who were living in rebellion was this. To listen to God's voice is to obey God's voice. And to disobey God's voice is to refuse to listen to him. Listening and obeying are one and the same thing. And so when God says here to us, or when Jesus says here in Luke 8, take care how you listen. Take care how you hear. 
he's not talking about something that's just mental. He's talking about something that's experiential. To listen to God's voice is to obey his voice. Take care how you're listening. There are a lot of different ways of hearing God's voice. We can hear what God has to say and it can go in one ear and it can come right out the other and we go on about our lives. That's not listening. We can let God's word go in one ear and we can think about it for a little while and then we just move on to other things and start thinking about other things and it never goes any further than that. That's not listening to God. We can hear it, we can consider it, we can even intellectually affirm it, but never put it into practice. That's not listening. The person who listens is the person who hears what God has to say, who considers it, who affirms it intellectually, and who puts it into practice. That's what it means to listen. That's what it means to hear. And that's precisely what Israel, Israel was refusing to do in all those passages we read. Oh, they heard what God had to say. They heard it in the sense of they understood what he demanded. They just refused to do it. And God says, you're not listening. You're not listening. The one who truly hears is the one who lives out the truth they've heard. Why does it matter? Why should you and I take care how we listen because he gives a pretty stern warning here he says the one who truly listens to the truth that is the one who considers it who affirms it and who puts it into practice that person gets more truth but the one who refuses to do that loses what little truth they have that's pretty serious isn't it to come and to listen to what God has to say and to consider it and to not do it, to walk away and not do it, is to put ourselves in a position where now it becomes progressively harder to hear in the first place. And whenever little truth that we think we've got comes unraveled around us, if you hear what God is saying through this, if you hear what the Lord Jesus is communicating to this crowd of people who've come and gathered to listen to him speak, he's saying something very profound. He's saying it's a very dangerous thing to hear the gospel. It's a dangerous thing to hear the gospel. It's a dangerous thing that you're doing in this room this morning. It's a very dangerous undertaking that you have set about this morning. If you'd have gone fishing this morning, if you'd have gone to the golf course this morning, there wouldn't have been a whole lot of danger except you might have been cold. But you've chosen to come here this morning to hear the word of the Lord. And when you hear what God has to say, you're now accountable to do something with it. One of two things happens every time we hear God speak. We either, we either listen to it, we either believe it, receive it, submit to it, and apply it in our lives, or we shake our heads, we walk out the doors, and we get on about our lives never doing anything with it. And there's a lot at stake in either case. When we receive it and we believe it and we embrace it and we put it into practice in our lives, the promise here is that God continues to reveal himself more and more progressively to us. But the warning is when we walk away and we don't apply it, he 
he shuts off the revelation altogether. And the more we hear and refuse to obey, the harder it gets to hear. He's talking specifically to those here who think they're believers, yet there's no evidence of good fruit reflecting a transformed heart. They think they're believers, but there's no evidence of light, of obedient living shining out of their lives. And they are setting themselves up for a shock in the future. That's what he's saying here. They're going to find out that the faith that they thought they have wasn't actual faith to begin with. They're going to be among those who Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, or those who hear on that day of judgment, away from me, I never knew you. I didn't know you. The illustration is like imagining a man who's sitting in a dark room and he's clutching in his hand a pile of paper bills and he fully believes that there, there's $10,000 in his grasp only to have somebody walk in and flip the light on and see that really the paper he's holding is blank. There's nothing printed on it. It has no value whatsoever. Can you imagine the shock that the light, when it's turned on, shows this fool that he's embraced something that's worthless? That's the person who thinks they belong to Christ, but there's no evidence in their life that validates what they think to be true. One day they'll stand before the judgment and a light will flip on, and they'll realize, to their own horror, the bills are blank and empty and they're bankrupt spiritually he reinforces this a third time in verse 19 through 21 which in a, in a, in a passage that seems sort of unrelated but Luke has put it here strategically he says then his mother and his brothers came to him but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd and he was told your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you but he answered my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it why does Luke place this here because Matthew and Mark place it earlier in the ministry of Jesus not here he places it here because he wants to to to, to, to sort of reinforce the message that's been sort of implied in the parable of the soils and in the story of the lamp that's hidden, he wants to say explicitly what's implied there. And that's namely this, those who truly know Christ are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now he talks here about Jesus' mother and brothers. Uh, Mary's already been introduced in Luke's gospel. We've already seen her early on in our study here. But this is the first time we hear about his brother's I won't spend much time on this this morning, but if you have friends that are Roman Catholic or if you have come out of a Roman Catholic background, you'll know that the Catholic Church embraces a, a, a bit of theology that's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. They argue that Mary actually never had any sexual relations with Joseph. She was perpetually a virgin for the remainder of her life and never bore any other children. Of course, there's nothing in the New Testament that indicates even remotely anything like that. Nothing really even in the whole first century that indicates anything remotely like that. We see it beginning in the second century in some apocryphal literature that starts to come onto the scene. But what do you do with a text like this when you embrace something like the perpetual virginity of Mary? Well, you, you do one of two things. You either say that what Luke is talking about here is is these, these brothers of, of Jesus, they, they had to have been uh, uh, 
other kids that belonged to Joseph from a previous marriage before he got together with Mary. Again, spend some time looking for that in the Bible. You don't find it. Or they'll argue something along the lines of this. This word translated brothers here is a general word that, that could actually be translated cousins. And so the reality here is it's, it's, it's not Jesus' brothers. These are just his cousins that are showing up on the scene. The problem with that is that word is never used to speak of cousins anywhere else in the New Testament. It's never used like that anywhere. Now, if we take the plain sense of the text, what is talked about here is brothers, that Mary and Joseph, after giving birth to Christ, went about having a normal marriage and normal sexual relations and had other children, other boys. And in fact, we find other girls in Matthew chapter 13, uh, beginning about verse 56 or 55, and are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters here with us. So Jesus had brothers and he had sisters. You think your brother is incorrigible. Imagine Jesus being your brother. Try to live up to that one. We see in John chapter 5, verse 7, his brothers, even though they grew up in the home with him, don't believe him. Not even his brothers believed in him. It's not until after the resurrection that his brothers believe in him and understand who he really is. They don't believe in him until after the resurrection. Now, after the resurrection in Acts chapter 1, we see the gathered church that's gathered together, and we see there that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So his brothers come around eventually. But here they've showed up in Jesus' teaching ministry, and they're trying to get to Jesus, and the crowd is so large they can't get to him. He's a, he's, a, he's a celebrity at this point, and large crowds have gathered, and they can't get to him. So they're, they're, they're spreading word through the crowd that, they, that they're there and that they want to see him. When the word eventually gets to Jesus, without being rude to his family, he takes the opportunity to explain to the whole crowd how anybody can be a part of his family. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Who are the people who are truly a part of Jesus' family? Who are the people who are really adopted into his family? They're the people who hear the word of God and they do it. They're not the people who just listen to it and affirm it and walk away and continue to live their normal lives. They're the people who hear the word of God and affirm it intellectually and put it into practice. That's who's adopted. That's who's a part of his family. They're the people who are doers of God's word, not just hearers, as James would say. So putting all this together, because our time is up, who are, the, who are those with the good soil hearts? They're the people who hear the word, and that word bears fruit in their life. Who are the people who truly have lit lamps? They're those who shine forth and good works in their life? Who are the people who truly are adopted and belong to the family of God? They're the people who hear the word of God and do it. And do it. Take care how you hear. That's a very serious warning to a group of people like us. To a group of people who make a habit of hearing what God has to say. 
it's a sober warning to us to, to, take a, to stop and take a look at ourselves and ask the question, am I really listening to God? And by listening, I mean, am I doing more than just hearing and intellectually affirming? Is this showing up anywhere in my life? Is there any evidence that my heart is being transformed by what I'm hearing? And if the answer to that question is no, all of chapter 8, verse 1 through 21, is Jesus saying to you, you need to take a close look at your heart. You need to take heed how you listen. Because the evidence of your life is you're not good soil. And the evidence of your life is the light of Christ does not indwell you because it's not shining out of you. The evidence of your life is you're not adopted into the family of God because you don't live like one of his children. In which case you need to repent and turn from your life of rebellion. Ask God to redeem your soul, to forgive your sin, and to transform you into the image of Christ. One of the biggest discouragements that I find as a pastor over time is to preach over and over and over truths from God's word publicly only to engage privately with God's people week after week and observe that much of what's said and taught and preached never actually plays out in any practical way in people's lives. That's reality. And it's a danger for a church of people who gather and like to read God's word and like to hear it. There's a danger for people like you and me that we can fall in love with theology for theology's sake. That we can love reading the word of God and intellectually saying we get it. Even being able to articulate it. Even being able to argue our point with somebody who sees it in another way but never actually living it. Never actually doing the word of God. But we love to read it, and we love to hear sermons, and we love to talk about it. But doing it is another thing altogether. Are you a doer of the word, or are you just a hearer? Take care how you listen. That's the message this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we recognize that what we're doing serious this morning. We've opened your word, and your word is your voice speaking to us. And now that we've heard it with our ears, you're calling us to listen to it by applying it to our lives. And every one of us who's in this room has a choice to make right this moment. Will we truly hear what you've had to say this morning? Or will it go in one ear and out the other? Help us, Lord, to examine our hearts and our lives this morning. To truly take care how we listen. To be honest about our own lives. To, say, to, to look honestly at our lives and say, listen, do I claim to, to have the light of Christ shining in me? Is there any light shining out of me that verifies that? If I claim to be the good soil, is there any fruit over time that's showing up in my life that validates that? If so, then praise you, O Lord, 
that you're transforming us into the image of Christ. And that we can know that we belong to you, that we're part of your family, no longer enemies, but children. But oh God, don't let a one of us walk out of this room today, be people who just hear it with our ears, but go on about our sinful lives and never do it. Deceiving ourselves into believing we're something that we're not. By your spirit this morning, we pray that you would open our eyes, each and every one of us, to reality. That we might see it now, rather than on the day of judgment. Now while there's time. You do your work in us this morning by your spirit, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.